as we continue our series and questions from the book of Acts over the course of the summer. Acts 17, let's pick up in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, sometimes you go to a house, perhaps it's on the market, or perhaps it's of a relative who had passed away, and it can be a little bit like an old museum, quite dated at times. You have probably experienced this yourself with some relative or friend, and maybe they passed away. Everything in it can smell a little old over time. They're perhaps of mice uh, eating away the couch, litter boxes that were filled long ago and never emptied, light bulbs that had burned out and weren't replaced, or stray prescription pills here and there in the corners on the carpet. And you know, just about everything in the fridge is going to be expired. (laughs) I once was offered a pop in a relative's home, took a long drink before I noticed it tasted very funny. I looked at the expiration date and it was 15 years before. (laughs) Waste not, want not, eh? I'm still alive. Now the city of Athens was a little bit like that old home I've just described. It had long ago, by the time we're visiting it here in our text, it had long before been past its prime. Its heyday had expired. It was, of course, a city with quite a past. Historically, it was the cradle of civilization and empire. But having been conquered by Rome, now it had dwindled. And it was a shadow of its former self. Its population actually at this point was about the same as Petrolia. That's how far it had come down from its heyday. (laughs) And in this day of Paul's served as a bit of a museum. It was a museum back then, just as it is today, where tourists of that day, like our day, would go and see the ruins, 
and visit the grandeur of what once was. And so it's there in this old, mildewing, musty, dusty Athens that Paul has been deposited. He's been left there to wait. And like a tourist, he takes a tour bus, as it were, to get a sense of the place, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so he's waiting for them, but he's going around. Look, at his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So everywhere he's taking a look, he's noticing this city is full of idols, all sorts of idols, idols on porches, idols on podiums, idols on pillars, items on roofs, idols on graves, many of them from the pantheon of the gods of Greece, Rome, many of the Caesars were depicted, Augustus and Tiberius and Germanicus and Drusus, Bacchus and Dionysus and idolatry and immorality always collect dust in the dark together. And Paul is just, as he's taking his tour, he's getting very agitated, we read, inside. He's provoked within him. That is meaning extremely irritated. It's, it's just, he's, it's like his spirit is pulling his hair out as he sees all of this rank idolatry. And he can't remain a tourist. He just can't. So he goes to the synagogue first, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So that would be on a Saturday. And there he goes, as was his practice, going to the synagogue first to tell them about Jesus. And we read the other days of the week, look at, and in the marketplace every day, he's there with those who happened to be there. So the agora, the marketplace, every day to reason with the pagans who were worshiping all these idols. This would be like, uh, the agora would be like a farmer's market of the day, sort of the hub of the city and Two, two groups of people are mentioned that he's going to engage with particularly, although there would be other groups as well. We read in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Epicureans, they are all around you today. This type of philosophy, some of your friends are Epicurean, your co-workers, people in your extended families. The Epicurean philosophy was basically approaching life like a, a random thing. An Epicurean would say this, good luck. They'd mean it because they just saw life as random chances, just Anything could happen. There's no governing authority, you see. Good luck, bad luck. And as a consequence, they simply gave themselves to pleasure. They presented themselves to pleasure because they just shrugged their shoulders, right? It's sort of like uh, the Epicurean philosopher Pinocchio who said, there's no strings on me. That was how they lived their life. So it's all around us today. And they would not fear God because they didn't really believe God existed. And if he did exist, well, 
he loves me. What's not to love? That would be what they would say. Don't worry about death. No, no, don't worry about death. Don't fear God. We're not going to feel in death. It all comes to an end anyway. And pursue pleasure as your chief uh, rule in life. It's all about you. It sounds like the people you know, doesn't it? Some of your young people. Some of your friends. This is how they've been trained to think in this way. They are Epicureans. Pursuing their pleasure. As the famous Epicurean Baloo in Jungle Book says, forget about your worries and your strife. Right? He says that the bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. It's all about me, you see, so I can rest at ease. Many who retire have been sold an Epicurean philosophy. Freedom 55, you ever hear that? <laughs> that was a big uh, commercial for a long time from, I think it was uh, London Life Insurance or something. Freedom 55, work to your 55 and then just live the rest of your life free, free from work, free from responsibility, spend your money on yourself. Go on your tourist trips and go here and there. Uh, live for yourself. Enjoy the best that life has. And, you know, your doc, when you get sick, your doctor can kill you because it's the end anyway. Be cremated. Have no, no funeral. I'll take my chances because there's no God anyway. Don't worry. Be happy. So Epicureans are all around us today. They just don't know that they are believing an ancient philosophy filled with lies. And then he mentions Stoics, doesn't he? Probably you're more familiar with the Stoic. The Stoic has room for gods, not the true God. They believe in the, they, they, they would have rooms for, for gods who control the fate, your fate. They are capricious gods. They are moody gods. They are more like us gods, you know, and we can't do anything. We just do what they have determined. And so Stoics would believe in fate and the idea of just suck it up. Just, just suck it up. If you've ever said that, you are saying something Stoic. And the Stoic would use this analogy, uh, that resign yourself to your fate. And it would be like you are a, you've attached your dog to a moving wagon by a leash. The dog can either happily trot after the wagon, or he can be defiantly dragged along by the wagon, but either way, the dog is going where the wagon goes. You see, that's how they would think. It's all been set, and nothing I can do about it. It's fate. They don't believe in a personal, loving God who cares. It's fate. It is what it is. If you've ever said it is what it is, that's a stoic belief. And so in the marketplace of products in this now village of Athens, there is a marketplace of philosophies, of ways to live life as well, of a marketplace of worldviews. And their reaction to 
Paul's preaching of Jesus Christ is not good. They say here, what does this babbler wish to say? Some of them said that. The word babbler is a word that was used to describe a a bird that would pick up a seed here and drop it, pick up another seed there and drop it. So it's the idea you're just dabbling in philosophy. Paul doesn't know any philosophy. He's just a dabbler, a babbler. He's pretending to be knowledgeable. So it's a very negative depiction here in their uh, question. Others said... He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, this is this is really important question to understand the entire Acts 17, to really understand how dangerous this moment was for Paul. To preach foreign de- divinities, foreign deities, without the approval of the Athenian council. You could be put to death for that. You were supposed to seek approval first. Very important. And the fact that uh, Socrates, you've heard of that philosopher, he was forced by the elders in the council of Athens to drink poison, hemlock, because he did exactly this. The charge against him was he was preaching foreign deities. So they killed him. And now they're saying the same thing against Paul. So it's a dangerous moment. And there seems to be a fundamental understanding in the heads of those in this Athenian council who are questioning him in these philosophers. Because it says here, he, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But you see, in in the Greek here, the word for resurrection is anastasis. And the Greeks had no understanding of resurrection. They'd never heard anyone proclaiming the resurrection before. So most likely what they've done is they have assumed anastasis is a proper name of a god. So Jesus... God and another God, Anastasis. They don't realize that it's what happened to Jesus. He was resurrected from the dead. So this is why they make the claim, a preacher of foreign divinities, this male and female God, which is how they typically saw things. So their disapproval is fundamental. And Withington makes clear in his... uh, commentary, how their confusion here really drives the entire argument of Paul in the text. Verse 19, they took him. That is a word of force. This is not an honest questions that they're asking. This isn't really curious. They're just curious. They want to know more. They are actually against him, and he is being brought up on charges. They took him. They brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So they tell it to us. This is step one of what putting Paul to death, because he didn't seek prior approval. And he says, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. (laughs) And then we find that Luke makes a comment here 
uh, to the narrative. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing else except hearing or telling something new. In other words, what he's saying is what was well known in Rome is that it was the Athenian council, the philosophers who gathered there in that old museum of a place who were the dabblers. They were the dabblers. They were accusing Paul of being what they in fact were themselves. They were projecting onto Paul. They were the busybodies, the dabblers, the bird picking up seed here and dropping it there. Paul then, in verse 22 and following, takes the position of a speaker or teacher. Notice, so Paul, standing in the midst, that's the position of the teacher, in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens... I perceive in every way you are very religious. Interesting, the word here could probably be better translated superstitious because that's where he's going. It, it can be translated either way, but the aggressive nature of what they're doing and Paul's agitation at their idolatry, uh, they're full of superstition. And now he advances the case. He says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What you worship, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. <laughs> this is very important because remember, the first thing you're supposed to do is get approval for a new idol. And then you were supposed to buy a piece of land. It could even be just a small piece that big. You set up your pillar. If it's a big piece, you might put something bigger up, an altar. You put a bust of your idol there, some statue of some sort. And then you begin to develop a sacrificial system. And you, you, you begin to develop the worship uh, and all of those things. Paul hasn't sought approval. So what he does is he does an end run around them. And he's saying that, look it, there is a statue out there. There is an altar to an unknown God. I want to tell you about that God. In other words, you've already proved of what I'm a, of, of, of the God who I'm going to tell you about. And suddenly their threat of execution of him is gone. You've already approved of this. It's quite a brilliant tactic. And look at how he'll go on, and he'll underline creation. The God who made, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's completely different than your idols, he's saying. Nor is he served by human hands. You're doing all this stuff for the gods that you have created out of your own mind, as though he needed anything, as though he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. He doesn't need temples. He doesn't need us. He, he, there's nothing you can give him. You can only receive from him life, breath, and everything. We are dependent on him. He's not dependent on us. And so he says, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Look at verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope they might feel the way toward him and find him. This is important 
because the Athenians believed that they sprang from the earth of Athens. They believed that they were something special. They believed that they came out of the ancient land called Attica as fully formed and, and that Athenians graced the world by their presence and their claim to the land was, was unique and special and ancient and deserving, that they were sort of God's gift to the world. They were blind to the museum they were living in and that it had long ago passed them by. And so when Paul is saying, look, God made all people from one person, not just, not Athenians. You're not that special. He gave to all their time and their place that all might become one in him, verse 27. It's not your location. It's not your city. It's not your land that makes you valuable. It's your nature that makes you valuable, which is made by God to be God's, to be his. And he presents mankind here in the Athenians as sort of groping in the dark, that they should seek God in the hope they might feel their way toward him. If you've ever been in the dark and trying to not bump into something, it's, that's their feeling, and they're getting lost. And he says, look, at he's actually not far from each one of you. He's right here. He's right there. In him we live and move and have our being. Wow. He's a creator. He's the source of life. He's the giver. And we are completely and entirely dependent on him for our existence and for our lives. Notice how he has attacked idolatry. God made us. We don't make God. We need God. God doesn't need us. He is Lord of all. He gives to all. He's close and personal. The Stoic would say no to that. Yes, he is. He's close. He's personal. The Epicurean would not say there is no God. Yes, he's Lord of all. He gives to all. There is a God. In verse 29, being then God's offspring. You see, we don't create God. He created us. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's why the pantheon of the gods was so twisted and bizarre and neurotic. And but because they come out of the heart of man, which is fallen. And when we create our own God, we create a fallen God that's very like us. Like, like the fallen human race. Paul moves at the end of his address, which is a summary. He moves to what he knows is going to be the most challenging for the philosophers of Athens, for the council. He says they're lacking in judgment, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's saying, look, at you're ignorant in the sense of lacking in knowledge. And he's going to take them now to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the final judgment. And he's 
pointing out the Epicurean ignorance, the Stoic ignorance. And that all of this, it's not, it's not that Paul's saying you need to add to your philosophies. You need to add Jesus. He's calling for conversion to Jesus. He's not saying here's some more knowledge to add to your knowledge that you already have. <laughs> He's saying, no, no, it's a rejection of these philosophies. And you need to embrace the truth of the creator and the salvation he offers through Christ. There's no diplomacy here, no compromise, no fellowship with idols at all. So he says here in verse 31, because he has fixed a day, he's called everyone to repent here in verse 30, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Christ. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You notice how he concludes repentance, speaking of our fallen nature and sin, the judgment of God. No exemptions for Athenians. And Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, the hope of eternal life. Their response, verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. You see, this is new to them. Never heard anybody preach this before. What did they do? Some mocked. They mocked. One of their philosophers had written this, when the dust has soaked up a person's blood, he is dead forever. No existence. So they were, they're mocking us. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Well, they're deferring it. Maybe they're just into a lot of questions, uh, never wanting the answers. But then we read, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, a man who's named after a uh, deviant god, idol, comes to faith. And, and one of the council an Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So there were some who came and believed in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin and receiving the assurance of the resurrection to life. You know, there are museums everywhere. We grew up, Charlene and I, near one that was called the Champlain Trail Museum. And it was sort of a, a pioneer village type thing. And you could get a good summer job dressing up as a pioneer and wielding your axe and, and answering questions of kids and pretending to, to be people from olden days, sort of stepping back in time. Not far from where Charlene and I lived, it still is there, the Canadian clock museum if you got a thing about ticking clocks do not go there because you go in there and it's like you are assaulted by the barrage of tick tock tick tocks and at that time it was in a big old old musty smelly house damp with mildew and we t I remember taking the tour with Charlene and and all these ancient clocks. It was like time had stopped itself. Brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens here in Canada, 
and who live around you in Lambton County are museum people. They are in the marketplace of ideas and they don't even realize they have stepped back in time. They don't even realize time has stopped for them. And they believe old lies created as Paul says here to the Athenians from the art and imagination of men. They believe these things and they fancy themselves new and improved and cutting edge and modern, modern. but their unbelief and their idolatries and the immoralities that go with their idolatries are the same old ones that have been around for the millenniums. And their beliefs about life and about death uh, that has collected dust through the ages has grown mildew and mold and it's toxic and it kills in the end. They profess themselves to be wise, but their foolish hearts are darkened. They believe they are something new, but there is nothing new under the sun. They believe they are something special here in Canada, but we are not special. Other than perhaps Canada deserves the judgment of God more than any other country in the entire world. Surrounding us are people who believe in blind luck and pleasure and that now is all they are, all that is. They are Epicureans. Surrounding us are people who think of fate and they go about their day, well, I guess fate had it for me. And they go as the Stoics of old. Or they believe, some around us believe, actually believe and live like greed is good and that you take care of yourself before everyone else. They're simply believing the ancient lies of the cynic. Or there's people who ask questions and they love questions. Questions, questions, and pile up questions, but who believe you can't really know anything and don't want any answers to their questions because then they would have to stop asking them. And they are simply the ancient followers of skepticism. And then there are those who get their theology from Star Wars and the Force or Disney movies that is ripe with Neoplatonism, the oneness philosophy. They are all in the dark and they're groping, they're groping, they're lost. At the age of nine years old, in the middle of the night, I got up out of bed to use the bathroom and it was dark. And I walked with my arms out because I didn't want to hurt myself on a door or walk into a wall and I couldn't see anything. And, and somehow I got confused and I got utterly lost in our basement. <laughs> 
in the very end of it, I, I had to cry out for help in the middle of the night. And dad woke up and came down and found me in a closet. <laughs> and so it is with our fellow friends and citizens of our country. They believe old gods and old lies and old sins and it's old ignorance. And it's long past their expiry date and it's toxic and it's deadly. And the smell of death is everywhere in our world right now, isn't it? It's everywhere as things seem to be falling apart. Museums often have dead, stuffed animals posed in some sort of action scene. Lions and tigers and artists' impressions, they say, meaning fake, <laughs> not real. We think they might have looked like this. We think they might have eaten this. They're guessing and presenting it as truth. Museum people are all around us. They're in your places of work, they're in your school, they're your neighbors, in your community centers, in your town halls, in our farmers markets, at our family reunions, and certainly in our councils. And they're groping, and they're groping in the dark. And God's not far from them. They would just believe if they would just repent and put their faith in the Son of God, who is true and real, the true God and the ever-living God, if they would just understand that they were created by him, for him, and repent and believe. Some mock us, don't they? It's quite the thing, trendy thing today to mock Christians or burn burnt churches in Canada. Some mock us for creation, for believing that God made us. They mock us for that. Some mock us for Christ being the only way. Some mock us for the very idea of salvation and sin and for resurrection and final judgment. They mock us. And they project their own mustiness and their own dustiness and mildewy beliefs onto us. They project them onto us. They are the ones who are declining, not the church of Christ, the true church. You know, don't believe them when they say your faith is going the way of the dinosaurs. Don't believe them. Don't listen to them when they tell you your belief in God and his word are irrelevant. Don't hear them when they try and convince you that you are the old-fashioned one in your morality and your desire to be holy is so old-fashioned. They are projecting. They are the Athenians of today, dabbling in worldviews that they don't really understand. And it's they who are in the dark. It's they who are stumbling around. And it's they who worship strange gods and divinities out of the art and imagination of men. And they are superstitious. And they are darkened. And they will face the judgment of God. You and I 
Christian. Our faith is not a museum piece. Our faith is not quaint and belonging to another time. No. Our faith is true because he is true and he is God and he has given us the knowledge of himself and our faith is current and it's alive, not dead because our savior rose from the dead and we live in him. We live and move and have our being and he and we will never expire. Our faith exists in the light. And remember, brothers and sisters, we are not tourists in this world. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we are not sightseers, but we are witnesses of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, thank you for saving us. And we are beset around us by all of these vain, ancient lies and philosophies, worldviews, a dime a dozen out there. It's still around today, molding and mildewing, people believing them, getting what they believe from movies and scriptwriters and Disney and who knows where else calling out things from their own heart and minds, just making it up as they go. Idols everywhere abound in the hearts of people here in Canada. Father, give us a voice to them. Our faith is so real and authentic and alive. We bring that smell of fragrance, the aroma of Christ to those who will hear and listen. And there are some out there, Father, like Dionysus and Damaris and others who, who will believe. Bring us to them. Give them ears and give us a voice to speak of Jesus Christ, to speak of our fallenness and our need of a Savior. And he who died for us was buried and rose again that we might live. Thank you, Father. Help us not be discouraged in these days, for we are part of the true faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.